Episode 64 of Fitness Behaviour with Bevan James Isles. An interview with Mick High, Chick Hemley High. Team, welcome along to episode 64 of Fitness Behaviour with Bevan James Isles, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness and all the benefits that come alongside it. Well, I'm back in New Zealand. Uh, I think I did the last show, maybe I did it at the airport, I can't even remember. Uh, but I'm back in New Zealand. I've just got back from LA. I spent a bit a few days in LA and uh, a bit of time in Sweden and uh, we arrived home yesterday and I have to say I had an amazing trip. I had some pretty cool life experiences along the way. Uh, at the same time, I also am glad to be home. I like my home. I love, I love Christchurch, and I love my home, and I love my partner, and I love my life. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not going to muck around today, to be honest, because I've got a good interview um, with Mikhai Csikszentmihalyi. Now, Mikhai Csikszentmihalyi, it's, it's a pretty full-on name for us English speakers, but he's um, a very influential person in the world of psychology and probably the most well-known work that he's done in his career is the concept of flow. Um, I'm sure lots of people who are listening to this have probably heard of his work before, the, the book Flow. He's written quite a few books around flow. And the concept around flow is really living in the optimal place where almost time becomes seamless and we, we function at our highest level. And what helps us to create flow states and how can we live in flow states more often. And he's, I highly recommend you read his book, um, Flow. Well, he's actually got a few books, but one book in particular called Flow. And it's the book I read just to do my research for this interview. And um, yeah, it's, it's very, very, very good stuff. It's very interesting, actually. I, I talked at the end of last month's podcast around the interview that I did with Mihai. And I have to admit, it was it was an interesting interview because normally when you get an author on, like if we think of the interview I did a few weeks ago with Brian Wansink, Brian, you know, they're very good at selling their messages. And it's not that Mihai isn't, but Mihai is an older man. He's 81. And when I sat down to do this interview with him, you know, I was, I was kind of expecting a pretty typical interview where these people who have, you know, spread ideas to the world become very good at selling their ideas, or not selling, but expressing and sharing their ideas with their audience. Um, Mihai being an older man, in some ways it was a little bit like sitting down with your granddad and having a conversation with your granddad. And um, I said this in the last podcast that in some ways this interview may be the best interview I've ever done, and it may be the worst. And, and what I mean by that is that I don't know if it was the best interview in regards to getting the points of his body of work out of him. But it was a great interview and just sitting down and listening to an amazing man who's lived a very, very interesting life. And I know that as I'm doing the interview, it's funny, when I record the interviews, I do it through Skype and they recorded it through video format. And I was just watching the video, the interview before and, and you see my face and I'm just, I've just got this, this kind of glint of happiness in my face. Or, 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 I know I just look, I look joyed to be I don't know if joy's the right word there, but I, I seem happy to be just be listening to this man. And, um, yeah, so so I'm just going to put the interview on. He, he is from, where is he from? I'm not quite exactly sure where he's from, but he does have an accent, and at times it may be a little bit difficult to understand his accent, but it's, you get used to it pretty quickly. Um, he's, oh, he's Hungarian, there you go, he's Hungarian. Um, 
check out the interview. I'll be really interested. Send some thoughts on the interview after the fact because I thought I, I loved it. You know, you you hear pretty quickly early on where he comes from in life and it's really amazing stuff. We do talk about the flow work later on in the interview, so you will get a bit of that later on as well. But I'm not going to muck around. I'm going to get that pretty much on first. But before I do, I'm going to talk about the patrons. And this week I have two new patrons of the show, Sue Cruziel, uh, and I've given her the nickname The Only Way Is Up. Now, Sue, if you want to, you can add the baby to it, like the song, The Only Way Is Up, baby. That's why I'm not a singer in my band team. I'd love to be a singer in my band, but sometimes the truth hurts. And I've also got Denise Dana, and Denise Dana, I've called you Ab Fab. You can be absolutely fabulous, or you can say you've got abs that are fabulous. So you can choose either way on which one you want to go there. So Sue and Denise are both new patrons of the show. If you want to become a patron of the show, you can also go to Bevan James Isles, and you'll see the link there that takes you through to my Patreon page. And you basically just donate a certain amount every time I release the show. Some other people who are patrons of the show is Rebecca Spears, she's Bullseye. We've got uh, Mordecai, The Marvelous. We've got Bernadette Parry, Soul Calibur. We've got Matt Akers, The Forest Warhol. And we've got Holly Woodhouse, and she's the go-getter. So once again, if you want to become a patron of the show, if you enjoy this show and you think it adds value to your life and you'd like to help me do more of this work, um, you know, it's really appreciated. And for those people who are patrons already, you guys are stars in my eyes. There we go, your stars in my eyes. Righto, guys, I'm going to get the interview on with the author of Flow and um, check it out. Righto, team, I'm very excited to have Mihai Chikzimihai on the show today. This man is uh, a very influential scholar uh, who's done some amazing work in which has influenced and uh, opened up a lot of people's minds to how to perform at higher levels in life. And so, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, welcome, Ryan. It's, it's amazing that it's day there too, and it's, it's day here. Um, I mean, I, I always thought that we were completely um, opposite sides of the 24-hour cycle, but no, no we, we can make these things work. So can, maybe we can start today's interview with you just telling me a little bit about your history. My history? Well, um, I was born in Italy um, in a little town called Fiume where my father was Hungarian consul because that town, that city, Fiume, used to be part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So there were lots of Hungarians there and there uh, my father was supposed to represent their interests in in, uh, in a, the Italian, now the Italian uh, government. And then, um, of course, after World War II, Fiume became part of, of Yugoslavia. Now it's Croatia, and it's not called Fiume anymore. It's called Rijeka, which also means a uh, river, a boat. Uh, Croatian and Italian names uh, mean river, a flowing river. And um, the um, uh, I grew up there, so I had a German nanny, so I spoke, the first pe person I spoke with to any uh, extent was German, so we spoke, uh, that was my first language, but at home with my parents I spoke Hungarian. 
And then when I, le you know, whenever I left uh, our house, uh, I had to speak Italian because I got spoke Italian in there, and I went to Italian schools. And then um, at the end of the war, I mean, I, I won't. It's a long story, but anyway, it was. Um, we survived the war. One of my brothers did not survive because he was uh, drafted into the army wow. um, as a college student. He was uh, the last year of the university, but uh, they took um, all of the engineering students at the university and gave them rifles. He, he was going to a university in Budapest in, back in Hungary and the 1400 students went to defend the north side of the city and out of them eight survived out of the wow. 1400. And he was not part of those so he, he did die there. And it, How old were you at the time? Ten years. You're old. ten years old. What, what, what can you give us? I know we're going to go into your kind of career work, but I'm kind of fascinated to see what was life like when the war was on. When what? Sorry. When, when during the war, what was life the, like? Yeah. Well, at first it wasn't too bad. My father was a diplomat, and so we got four times the normal uh, number of meal coupons that you needed to have to exchange for food because of the official uh, market. Um, and so we got enough food, but a lot of pe um, people were hungry by then, but we weren't, um, we weren't uh, harassed in, uh, by anyone. In fact, my father uh, used his diplomatic position to allow hundreds of Hungarians who were either uh, left-wing or Jewish who were trying to escape uh, somewhere where they wouldn't be persecuted. And so he would um, give visas, stamp their documents, uh, even though they weren't supposed to wow. be given visas and, and they his superiors in Budapest finally called on to it and asked him to stop or he would have to be fired from his position. But he found other ways, like he would write long letters saying that this person has such and such a disease which can only be cured in Hungary. So he um, has to go to Hungary and then, uh, because for instance, Jews were persecuted in Italy before, before Hungary by two years. So a lot of Hungarian Jewish people who were in Italy were in danger of being put in the camp. So um, he would send them, they wanted to go back to Hungary. And so he said, uh, I gave this visa because they were they have a disease that can only be cured in Hungary and so forth. So um, he almost got fired, but um, now there are hundreds of people who have 
since then say that their lives were saved by the fact that he put the stamp on their document, on their passport. Wow. So, um, but I, I was quite, you know, I was young. Uh, the war ended. I was ten years old, and and besides the um, the lack of food, it wasn't uh, uh, too bad. I mean, it was kind of exciting. You know, I remember. Um, we went with my mother and sister to, back to Hungary to visit relatives and Hungary, uh, and it was good there for a while, but then the Russian troops started moving in and we had to, we decided to go back to my father who was still in Italy working. And so we took a train in Budapest and it was the last train that left the city after that the Russian uh, troops had completely surrounded the city and then nobody could leave for almost a year. Wow. But we made it and just as we passed on the bridge of the Danube, the bridge was blown up. So we, we got through and as we passed um, different parts of, we were going back to Trieste and then Venice, where my father was in Venice at the time, Consul General in Venice. But as, as we were going through, we were attacked by partisan troops, uh, uh, Serb partisans who were attacking the uh, with machine guns and so forth. But so, in the compartment, the small little compartment that we were in, there were two German soldiers with machine guns who were shooting out of the window to, at the partisans. And uh, I was under the seat, and uh, my mother under the other seat. And I remember all the cases, uh, the, the uh, bullet uh, cases just flying as the guys were shooting out the window. And it was kind of fun, exciting stuff. Uh, then we arrived in uh, Venice at the airport, and there, uh, not the airport, the train, a railway station. And as uh, we were about to get out, in fact, we already got out um, a bunch of um, British um, dive bombers came around. Uh, and uh, dropped a, a bunch of bombs, and I got a shrapnel in my knee, which uh, uh, well, actually not one. There were twenty-seven little pieces that went all into. But at the time, I barely noticed. I was so scared. But then the um, you know the uh, these little wounds where the shrapnel entered became infected inside, and it was it grew to twice as big than the knee, around the knee. And the doctors wanted to amputate my leg, but my father uh, insisted that, no, uh, they shouldn't amputate because he just had the first packet of penicillin or streptomycin, one of the two kind of uh, biome, uh, uh, new uh, sulfur drugs that were developed in, in Great Britain at the time, and, and 
the uh, Allied front was halfway through Italy, and the, so the Allied soldiers would barter cigarettes uh -huh. and sulfur drugs for whatever, yeah. you know, ancient paintings, uh, young ladies or whatever. So they, we got, uh, the, he got through the black market, the sulfur, and uh, the doctor didn't know how to use it because they weren't yet known at the time, but he, he kind of uh, put it on the, sprinkled it on my knee, and um, after a few days, you could squeeze my knee and out of 27 different holes, uh, it was like toothpaste, you know, coming out of 27 toothpaste jars uh, and so on. And after that, you know, the drugs were, it was really a miracle drug at the time, and it worked like that. It, uh, they just bandaged it after they pushed out all the pus, um, and then um, it was okay. So then we were, um, my father was still in the diplomatic corps um, at the time, and, uh, and the diplomatic corps of, um, in Italy was all moved first from Rome up to Venice in northern Italy, but by then also Venice seemed uh, too vulnerable, so we all went, all the diplomats went to a big resort town on Lake Como called Bellagio. And Bellagio is, was uh, a real kind of uh, uh, spa on this lake, yeah. Como. And that's where we ended the war. And I still remember uh, um, we had radio and we could listen to Radio Free Europe, the British broadcast. And I remember one afternoon hearing uh, on Radio Free Europe, uh, Winston Churchill saying, we know where the diplomats or the axes are holed up in Italy and we are going to visit them soon. And well, I don't know what the hell it meant, but next day a bunch of Lancaster dive bombers came over the Alps and started came to, in front of the hotel, there's a huge hotel with all the diplomats, and they started machine gunning. I was kind of frozen, like, at the window. I didn't know what to do. And the, 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 all the, the front of the hotel was, was uh, uh, raked by the machinery fire, and then they, they couldn't drop bombs because the hotel was backed by a big uh, a hill and they had to move up and they couldn't really um, drop effectively there. So they dropped bombs elsewhere, but we could see it elsewhere. But, uh, so we, we weathered that, that, that problem and then a few weeks later, no, a few months later, 
we heard that Mussolini was trying to escape to Switzerland along the shore of Lake Como, but he was on the other shore, which was about four or five miles from the hotel across um, across the lake. Uh, actually, probably less three miles at the moment. And um, so we were kind of looking. We had binoculars to see if we could see the the line of cars that accompanied Mussolini. They had also trucks full of gold and things like that, trying to escape to Switzerland. And then we we didn't see them, but after a while we started hearing machine gun coming from across the lake, and it turned out that was when he and his uh, girlfriend, uh, Petacci, were uh, shot then by the the partisans who had captured them, had ambushed the motorcade and and, uh, got them against the wall. So it was kind of exciting. if I had been a father or a parent at that time, I would be have been petrified. Yeah. You know, but as a kid, it was all kind of fun in a way. I mean, it was scary, but it was also exciting. Can, can, can I ask how did that influence your 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 life work? Because obviously, you you know, at some stage in your life, you decided that you wanted to have an understanding of how humans work, um, and so. From was that a big influence on, you know, the way you took your career? Well, it it was a part of it. Um, I think I started doubting the sanity of the adults when I was when we were under these uh, bombing uh, raids. First in Fiume, Fiume was bombed almost every night because they had big naval factories there. They built. For, warships and stuff. So every night, every evening, a bunch of um, allied planes from Africa would come up um, and bomb at night for an hour or so, and then then they would disappear. Then next night or two nights later, they would come. And we were... So I spent an awful lot of nights in the, down in the basement of the big apartment house where we lived with all the other people who lived there and just seeing all these adults sitting in the dark and talking and not knowing what the heck was going on and what they should do and what they shouldn't do. It was a very strong impression on how kind of... Uh, vulnerable people actually were. And before I thought, you know, as a nine-year-old, I thought that uh, all grown-ups, you know, knew the score, you know, they more or less knew what they had to do. They had a plan, they had an idea of the future, etc. And so between nine and ten years old, I, I had my kind of world view turned upside down and I realized that most adults didn't know. And then after, you know, at the end of the war, uh, 
we were no longer in Hungary, but almost all of our relatives in Hungary were killed, including my brother. The other brother was 20 years older, had been married and had already two children. He was taken from the streets by a passing group of Russian soldiers and together with another 900 people they picked off the street was sent to the Ural Mountains to, uh, to work in the mines and, uh, and they were worked almost to death. I mean, he, he was freed uh, when, after Stalin died and the Russian new government allowed the Red Cross to come to the camps uh, to investigate the conditions, and they found that my brother had already developed some kind of a almost paralytic uh, condition of his legs because he had been for the past eight years working with water up to his chest really? uh, and so forth. Um, so he returned to Budapest where his family luckily was still alive, and um, and he passed. He lived till he was 84, 82 years old. Uh, and I had a chance to visit him after 40 years, of not uh, more than 40 years, 50 years, that we hadn't seen each other. But I, I was able to go to Budapest and see him. And he was still a very happy, resolute person. So there were people like that who survived and uh, and weren't crushed by the loss of job, property, family, health, all of this. Mm. But most people, when they lost those things, had nothing to fall back on. And they, they were uh, either depressed, de desperate, or become almost kind of zombies who weren't in this world, really, psychologically. So, that was very much one of the reasons all of these end-of-the-war experiences were the reason why I became interested in psychology. Yeah. You, 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 you're, one of your most influential work is, is the concept of flow. Maybe, you know, because lots of some of my audience may know of this, but many people will have no you know, maybe don't know what it is. So can you maybe explain what you see flow is and, um, and maybe give us some kind of thoughts around how it works and stuff like that? Yeah, it, it, it probably, that interest in that state of flow also came at the end of the war um, when uh, one of my uncles taught me to play chess and I remember playing chess sitting in... Um, our apartment in Budapest, and uh, uh, around us, houses were falling down and, and erupting in fire, and people screaming in the streets, being killed, and so forth. And um, that uh, that was something that kept me kind of pretty anxious. But then, when I started playing chess. I didn't have, it was like the sound and the visual 
around the environment were were not there anymore. I, I couldn't notice it because I was so f focused on the next move and, and tried to anticipate what my opponent was going to do, etc. So that that I had these experiences that later when I was in Italy again and went mountain climbing and became an rock climber and I also when I painted and when I wrote um, these were moments where you were so engaged in what you were doing that you forgot about the future, you forgot about the past, you were just focused on finding the best colors if you were painting, the best words if you were writing, the best moves if you were climbing. Um, and that, that uh, concentration on the present, on the activity that allowed you not to fall from the mountain or not to put a, the wrong color on the painting, uh, that concentration required to keep doing the activity well was an incredible relief from everyday problems and mm -hmm. so and so I was uh, interested, how do people get this? Why does it happen that you can enter in that state? And so when I was um, already, I had finished my doctoral work in, at the University of Chicago and I started teaching. And after a couple of years, in one of my classes, I decided to ask all the students to do a, a study of an activity that grown-ups did, not children, but grown-ups did, which was play-like in the sense that it wasn't necessary, it wasn't important, but it was so entrancing that you could get fully concentrated on it. Mm. And that, at the end of the course, the students came with all these very interesting interviews, observations they did with a great variety of activities, and we put down on a blackboard, you know, what was, what each student found in the group that they studied, and and some were sports, some were artistic, some were um, musical, some were uh, had to do with uh, with uh, acting, uh, where people felt so engaged and they forgot everything, and we tried to find out what was common to all of these activities, mm -hmm. and. To my surprise, I thought that uh, each activity would have a different set of rewards that made people want to do it. But what actually turned out but to be the case is that uh, across this great variety of different activities, the same type of inner feelings were experienced, no matter whether it was a very passive activity like reading a good book, or a very active, or 
we, we had a swimmer who, uh, uh, one of the people who, who the students interviewed was a woman who liked to swim across the British Channel from Calais to wow. and, um, and she had the world record also um, uh, for women in the crossing. But she crossed it like 80 times or something. And then she crossed from Florida to Cuba and things like that. So some were kind of really at the edge of physical experience. Others were very quiet, like making music or reading a good book or playing chess. But the many of the things that the people reported feeling while they were doing this thing were the same. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't that, um, in other words, the swimmer across the channel would uh, report that after a while her concentration was so, so uh, intense on the pattern, the rhythm of her movements, uh, and to make sure that she didn't put this right arm too quickly before the left came out, and vice versa. And, and she was monitoring the currents at the same time. Um, she was monitoring body temperature and uh, trying to adapt to that. There was usually a, a boat behind her and she could get something to drink yeah. if she needed. So all her attention was focused on crossing that damn thing and for uh, 10 hours, 12 hours, whatever it took, it, that's what, what um, was paramount. In there. Um, and um, and everything else disappeared, and as she was doing it, she felt she was at one with the waves, and she was one with the big fish that would come by, and when she came out, she felt, in a sense, uh, a return to the earth, and, uh, and, and of course, she would get sick as heck, and she would be vomiting, she would be hypo, uh, 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 the temperature was yeah. too low. So usually, as soon as she comes out, she, she's, she gets her oxygen mass, an intravenous drip, and she's driven to a hospital to recover for a few days. But, but still, she did it because it was such an Incredible. Uh, I mean, she got notoriety from it too, but it was not a not an important part because I mean, how many people get excited about swimmers who go across the the ocean? It's not not a big deal. But for her, it was um, a way of living in a different dimension of existence where she felt both at home and in control of, to a certain extent, more in control of than in everyday life. And she felt that she was 
doing the best she could do. And that combination is such, so powerful that people would want to do it over and over. And at first I called this thing the autotelic experience. And autotelic is a combination of two Greek words means goal in the self, in itself. And because that was the best way of describing this thing, that people do it just because they want to do that thing. Mm -hmm. you know, not because what they get from it, but for just for the sake of doing it. And, um, but when I called it autotelic experience, nobody, nobody understood what the heck that was. <laughs> Wasn't very, so, wasn't very good branding. It wasn't good branding. And then, um, as I was reading through the interviews over and over across various different things, I noticed how often people used, said, well, you know, it was like so spontaneous, automatic, it was like flowing down a river, you didn't have to make an effort. I, I was making a heck of an effort, but it didn't feel like that. Mm -hmm. It felt just um, wonderfully, uh, almost relaxed, but it's uh, uh, self-contained and suffering. And they used the word flowing, flow, like a current, like a, a river, etc. So I said, to my students, let's call this damn thing flow experience because that's much shorter people. And, you know, it's, it was incredible. The moment we started calling it flow, people came up and said, hey, you know, I, I experience flow. Yeah, I, and they can tell you about it. Whereas autotelic experience, nobody uh, uh, hung on to it. But, yeah. So you often talk about the nine components of the achieving flow. What, what are those nine components? Well, um, there are three that seem to be preconditions. There is, um, if they are there, it makes it easier that you get in flow. And one is that there is a clear goal to achieve. The uh, second one is you get feedback to whether you are achieving the goal or not. Imagine a tennis player who couldn't tell where the ball went after you hit the ball. Yeah, um, You need the feedback. You need to know them too close to the line or I'm over the line. So the next time I hit the ball, it will get in rather than out. So the, um, these clear goals and immediate feedback allow you to concentrate, okay? But the other thing is that uh, the third, so clear goal, clear feedback, and then the third condition is that the challenge you're facing, it's not hugely greater than your skills. Okay. Nor is it even a small part less than your skills. So it's, it's the appropriate challenge for where my skill base currently is. Yeah. yeah. And we found since then that people can get flow even when the challenge is quite a bit higher. But when the challenge is lower than your skills, then you immediately 
get out of flow. Mm. You, know, mm. you feel overwhelmed with doing this, this stupid and so Okay. So, clear goals, immediate feedback, matching challenges, skill matching. When those three are present, you are probably going to start concentrating, focusing on what you're doing. And you're going to stay focused because the feedback tells you that if you lose focus, you're going to lose out. Yep. Whether it's chess or, or uh, skiing or whatever, you know that after a while that you got to focus on what you're doing. Or, or you're, okay, so... Um, you, you will concentrate and you will not be distracted. If the, when those conditions are present, the next one usually you're fixing is that you feel that time is, is no longer something you're aware of. In fact, usually when you stop at the end, you say, oh my God, I thought... It was only 10 minutes, but it's been two hours, you know, or three hours. You know. So time disappears, uh, the awareness of time disappears. And then you feel that things can, you feel that you no longer exist as a separate entity in a sense, you are part of what's going on and you are not self-conscious, that is, you're not aware, you're not afraid of failing and you're not worried about what other people are thinking about, you're just doing what you're doing and, and so on. So, loss of self-consciousness. Mm. Then, finally, there is the uh, kind of a feeling of control, uh, or at least the feeling that you are not going to be in a situation that you can't cope with. You know? mm -hmm. And that, that's very strange because you get these rock climbers you know, on, a sheer, on a sheer rock face, which is 2,000 feet, let's say, and there on top there, hanging by their fingertips, and they say when they finish that, you know, I, I felt safer there than I feel crossing an intersection in Manhattan or, or somewhere, but I have no idea what's, who is going to hit me with that. Uh, there on the rock, it's me and the rock, and if I have developed my skills as I should have, and I didn't take a challenge that was way too high, then I should be able to do it. And, and, and so you, you feel the sense of control. And when those are present, then all of these things are present. And the time, time fleets by, you feel in control, you don't feel self-conscious, self-aware, you're focused, you're not distracted, then that's when what you're doing tends usually becomes autotelic. That is, 
you feel, wow, this feels so good, I would do it again, even though I don't have to do it, or I'm not paid, or I'm not going to get fame from it, but it's, it's just really fun to do it. And then uh, that completes what... So, so, with, so when you're in the state, would we say that that's when you're experiencing the highest level of performance and self? Um, yeah, and it, it's interesting because, as I say, the self-awareness disappears in the activity, you know? Mm, mm. But afterwards, when you look back and you realize what had happened and what you did, then self-esteem goes up. We, we have studies that show oh, that okay. when the self-esteem turns in higher than... It had been before because you feel wow, it was really difficult. I I stretched myself and I made it, and that makes you feel uh, more ready to confront the next challenge. You know, and because you feel uh, you can do it. So even when I'm in my flow state, uh, while I'm taken away from the experience after the fact, I can allow myself to own the benefits of it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. So that's, and that's not just in sports, but in chess or in art. The, the painter who can get flow from his art and looks back on it says, wow, that was a great feeling to be able to have done this painting. And, mm. and he may take the painting and put it against the wall and never look at it again. But he's just eager to start on the next page. Mm -hmm. you know? And if he does that enough, chances are, other things being equal, that he's going to uh, succeed at what he's doing. You, know? uh, you need uh, some, I suppose, some genetic material, and you need some ex experience to be great at something. But... Uh, the perseverance that is needed to become a good at sports or art or science, that perseverance only comes if you enjoy the activity for its own sake. Mm -hmm. Because you like to do it and you're not discouraged if people say that's nonsense. Or you're not discouraged if your experiments turn, turn wrong one after the other. And you simply say, oh, that's interesting. How? So I must have missed something here. Okay, let's start, try this new experiment where I look at this thing that I ignored before. Maybe that's it. And you keep doing that until suddenly the experiment clicks and, you know, you have found what you were looking for, you know? How do we... So, like... You, you've explained what it's like to be in that state really well and, and obviously the benefits of being in that state. If I'm someone listening to this, what are the steps I take in my life to actually get to a place where I experience flow more often? Well, I think one thing you have to do is to pay attention to what you really like to do. And uh, many people when they are 70 or 80 years old, say, gee, you know, I just regret not having sailed more because when I sailed at 
when I was 18, that was such a high point in my life, and I never felt as good again, you know, because I felt I had to work, I had to do this, I had to do that, but, and, and I missed the opportunity to, to get that feeling. So you have to be honest with yourself and say, what, what is really like about them? I think you have to critically look at the, that thing and say, is this really good for me? Is it good for others? It's good for society? You know, if uh, there's a guy who got arrested this summer next to our place in Montana who apparently has been responsible for for igniting more than 20, 27 big forest fires. Oh, really? And... Uh, and burned out, you know, literally several thousand acres of forest, and and um, over over the past two three years, and when he was arrested and started being interrogated, you know, he says that it's a, a really such a wonderful feeling to see that from this little spark, you know, out grows this nice fire, and. Then, this tree catches on, and then that tree catches, and then the fire moves, and and it's just a feeling of beauty and uh, power and so forth. So there are people who, for some reason, end up getting flow from either hurting other people, like boxing, uh, or from uh, doing things that are antisocial or disruptive. I mean, suppose that you become, begin to get flow from betting on the horses, let's say, you know, and occasionally you win, and it's fun to anticipate which horse will win and put money on it. But after a while, you know, that could cause uh, real problems in your family, your wife may say, that's stupid, you know. Yeah. I have not to be to be married to someone like that, or and your kid may not be able to go to school because you are putting your money in the horses. So you got to be realistic in terms of the impact that the flow experience has on your future. You know, our most real um, typical flow activities are healthy and or at least not unhealthy, but, but, and not disruptive. But there are disruptive ways that people describe going to war and being on the front and trying to shoot the people half a mile away, you know, mm. that being extremely exciting and flow police. So it's, flow is not, it's a neutral in terms of ethical uh, value, you have to assess the value yourself. But it is generally and usually if you can get flow from a thing that from an activity that's halfway uh, honest and uh, healthy, you are going to have a much better life. So, think back about what you like to do. If, in the past, if you 
tentacle and find out. Now try out different things that may be flow producing. And then when you really start clicking, ask yourself, is this something I should be doing uh, in a, on a large scale or not? And that's the ethical component, which is wise to consult, because if you don't, you may get stuck with some really bad habits there. Mm. But, um, but if you do find one, then you can begin to figure out how to do it better, how to make the condition better. For instance, we have um, a course in which I, I um, of students, post-grads, grad students, uh, they have um, one of the assignments at one point is to take something in their life that they hate doing and that takes up quite a bit of their time, but they don't like it, and try to use what they learn about flow to change it into something less aversive, you know? Mm. And boy, you know, it's incredible how many interesting things people come up with, like, you know, um, from, um, suppose that you're studying, and you hate to read the textbook, which is very common. You know? <laughs> In, uh, so, uh, some people say, well, you know, I was so easily distracted. At the moment I didn't like something in the book, I was boring. My mind turned to something else. So I realized that I had to make my environment as neutral as possible so that it wouldn't immediately catch my attention when I, I was uh, bored. So you turn off any kind of source of music in the environment, you um, turn off, um, uh, you don't, you close the door, you don't go to bed to read because then you fall asleep, but yeah. you isolate yourself so you can focus on this, your concentration on the book. Uh, that's the, the lowest level of trying to make it more flow-like. The much more higher levels that are people say, okay, I decided that instead of just reading the book so I could pass the exam, I started, I imagined that I have to teach this book to younger students. And now I have to read it in so as to convey the information. And that immediately puts you in a very different position because now you can say, this part, I don't care about, it's not. This is the crux, this is the important thing. So you develop a critical attitude towards your reading and that's energetic, uh, active way, and pretty soon, people who develop that that strategy, they all benefit greatly from it, mm-hmm. and uh, and so on. You know, uh, you can take almost everything: cooking, cleaning dishes, um, 
all the things that seem. So, so it's, it's kind of like what you're saying is that as I look at the activities I want to get flow with in my life, A, I need to understand my current skill level, but then I need to look for a little bit of evolution in that and, and evolving how I approach that that will help me take me towards that state. Right, right, right. And um, of course, most flow comes from activities that exist Primarily to give people flow. I mean, all of the sports, all of the art forms are there because people love to dance. They love to hear stories. They love to see people act out things. They love to hear, to sing, to do. Okay, so those are easy. Okay, Mm. there the flow is almost, you don't have to think about it. It will come. Mm. Um, if you seriously pay attention to it, uh, even for a short period, uh, you get hooked into it. But the everyday routine, mundane activities are much more difficult because they exist not to make you feel good. They exist to make life, uh, the external aspects of life, more con- uh uh, more comfortable or productive, yeah. not just to you, but often only for other people. You, know, you have to do it for others. And, mm. and when you have to work for others, uh, or uh, it's you, the natural feeling is done. I could be so much happier doing what I want to do instead of having to do this stupid thing here. Mm. But interestingly enough though, a, a lot more flow is reported by people who work in factories and offices at work than for people at home when they have nothing to do. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, so the person who has the attitude of trying to evolve and uh, grow and challenge themselves, and even in a job that may not necessarily you would think that they would love, if they have that attitude, they can actually find that state, and so then they get the rewards of that. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's that's very much so. One of the most um, interesting uh, kind of reports on flow. Uh, came during a, a, a show put together by More Good Morning America, which is an American. Yeah. And they asked me, the producer of that show asked me, you know, what could I give him some names of people who I know to be in flow so they could interview them and talk, uh, find out what uh, then, you know, how they get into flow, etc. I wrote back saying, no, I'm sorry, but I don't like to do that. Uh, we uh, keep this professional yeah. uh, thing. And, and, uh, and I talked to him, why don't you just uh, send somebody down into Rockefeller Plaza, the, their building is right skyscraper next to Rockefeller Center in New York. Uh, send them down 
and ask people on the street, you know, you like your job, and if they say, yeah, uh, listen to what they're saying, and you will get some good story. And you say, oh, no, yeah, but that's that, the problem. Oh, okay, okay, and hang up. And a week or so later, he calls up again and say, you know, we have some really great stories. We did that, what you suggested, and it worked out. And uh, so I watched the, the show, and, and I was surprised how good. The very first guy was somebody in the 60s who had been um, making locks and bagel sandwiches in a delicatessen in Manhattan for the past 40 years. Uh-huh. And that means having to slice salmon into very thin slices to put it in the, with a bagel in a sandwich and so And so the uh, news, the reporter, TV reporter asked him, well, could you say, you say that you like your job, could you say, why do you like, like your job? To take it? Oh, wow. I like my job because when I go home, I feel that nobody else could have done it as well as I did, you know. Uh. And, and the reporter asked him, really? I mean, what, what could it give you that feeling? I mean, you, you're just slicing fish all, all uh, day. And he said, yeah, but you should realize that every fish is different, he said. When I get to work around uh, four in the morning, already the next day's catch is, is waiting for me in the fridge refrigerator and I take out one big salmon after the other, take it to this big table where I, I cut them and I let them drop on the table. And then I pick them up and let them drop again. And do this until I have developed in my mind a three-dimensional X-ray of this fish. I have learned by hearing how the sound of the fish falling, how thick the the, uh, backbone of the fish is, where, how dense the side, uh, uh, what do you call them? The the bones, the ribs, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I know how how tough the, the flesh is, so after I know all that, I have the three-dimensional uh, X-ray. I go and get these uh, knives that I keep constantly sharpening during the day, and I start cutting. And to say I have three, three things. Each cut I make has to have three. Uh, has to meet three. Criteria. criteria, yeah. We didn't call it criteria, but, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, One is, it should be as fine a, a slice as possible without uh, without cutting through, but it should be very, very thin. I should be able 
to waste as little uh, flesh as possible. And the third one is I should do is as effortlessly as possible, because otherwise after a few hours I, I can't move anymore. Yeah. So nobody else knew that this one is criteria. He set them up himself, and he kept trying to live up to make as fine slices as possible, as fast as he could, with, uh, without uh, wasting flesh and without getting tired. Yeah. If he had this criteria, he could feel proud, go home, and forget his fish until next day and just uh, read and listen to music and feel good about his life. I mean, that was a great example. And there were others, interestingly enough, right after that they had a doctor, a woman, pediatrician, who saw children in her office, and she said almost the same thing. She said, you know, I just can hardly wait in the morning to see the first kid walk in the door to my office. Because as I look at that kid, I try to imagine, if I were that child looking the way he looks, what would be wrong with me? You know? uh, yeah. And then I make a quick diagnosis as to it's intestinal or it's, it's uh, circulatory or it's something else, whatever. And then I try to test it out by pushing the kid by asking him questions and her questions. And at the end of, you know, 10, 15 minutes, I have a mental picture of the kid, you know, uh, of her skeleton and her veins and her stomach and uh, uh, everything else. And I feel very good having, if the diagnosis is confirmed by other signs that I look for, then I feel really good. I feel, gee, you know, this is a great job I did. And, and then if I'm not sure I, she would uh, prescribe an x-ray or a, a blood test, but usually she could do it without those signs. Yeah. Yeah. So that, these two are, you know, very, very different people, very, very different jobs. And yet, the approach they take to their job was almost essentially the same. Mm. And almost everybody who likes their job will tell you that. Mm. If you're a poet, what you are trying to do is to find the best words that describe what you feel. And then you have to know what you feel, what is it you want to express. Then you have to find words that mesh the best way. And so that's a new criterion. Now you have to change some of the words because they don't rhyme, they don't scan, they don't, and so forth. So you have to pay attention very, very much. You have to immerse yourself in what you're doing, whether it's cutting fish or writing poetry or, or healing children. But you have to immerse yourself completely 
and operate in that world that you have discovered to change it. You know, mm. or make a form the doctor to make the kid feel better and you know, the guy in the delicatessen is to make a lot of good sandwiches that the people will enjoy. And that that's where work can really be flow and it, it becomes good work. So I suppose, uh, because I don't, I've already taken an hour of your time, I don't want to take too much time, but maybe just one kind of challenging question for you. How have you found your ability to maintain flow in your own life? Yeah, you know, it was easier before I started writing my books on flow, because now it's almost, you know, I returned from Europe on an airplane after talking at various universities there, and I go to bed exhausted, and after a couple hours the phone rings, and I pick it up, and somebody's there on the other hand to say, you don't know me, but I am here in New York. <laughs> I'm sitting in a room with a gun in my head, and I'm going to blow my head off if you don't tell me why I shouldn't do it. Oh, really? Wow. And yeah, yeah. I mean, tips like this, not not all of them like this, but but uh, some this bad, others. Uh, uh, people think I can, you know, solve the problems just mm. by giving them a quick uh, recipe for a good life and so forth. It's not that easy. I mean, it's it's uh, um, some people get to it naturally and understand it. But um, um, my flow experience, my ability to concentrate has decreased because uh, of the request to do things like uh, talk on the talk on the uh, television show with you, which I enjoy doing, but it's a uh, it is interfering with other things that uh, I have to do, and so um, we all live in a time crunch. Mm. You, you do your audience also, and uh, and I do, and that's that's one of the reasons why we have hard time getting experiencing flow because we're always watching the clock and worrying about the next appointment, the next yes. the next time. And um, so that's hard. So one way I do it is I have a job where I can take two months off and I go with my family up in the mountains and we live there with a few bears, a few beavers and so forth. And, uh, and if everything slows down and becomes manageable and uh, I can think for long periods, I can write for long periods, and that's where my most of my flow comes from is writing. And, but in when I'm here at the university, I have almost no time to write. <laughs> I can imagine everyone wants your time. Hey, well, thank you so much for your time today. I, I, I could I could talk to you for hours. I seriously could. I, you, you're such a a yes. what? Wise man, and uh, and I just really appreciate you taking the time to talk to my audience. Um, 
you've just got so many great stories and uh, your work has been very, very great. And Farah, there's so much more I could talk to you about. So maybe I'll get you again on the show one time in the future. Right, I think that's pretty much this month's or this fortnight's show. Uh, hopefully you got something from that interview. There's again, as I was saying earlier on, it's it was um yeah, it was just really nice to sit down with a man who had a life mission and, and to kind of talk to him in the latter part of his life and just to to kind of try to understand the man and, and where he comes from and you know some of his work. So hopefully you enjoyed that interview. Um, again, if you want to become a patron of this show, you can go to www.bevanjamesisles.com, become a patron. It really helps me get more great interviews out there for you. Next month, I'm trying to get hold of a person who not many of you guys will know, uh, maybe from the triathlon world you'll know him, but throughout outside of triathlon, this is a man who's put a lot of thought into living well. That's probably the greatest way to put it. So I'm not going to give you the details yet because I haven't locked in the interview yet, but I'm trying to get that organized right now. So next month I'll get that in. But in two weeks, I'll be back again with the Bevan Show. And I hope I'll have something really great for you there. So you guys have a wonderful two weeks. If you have any questions, you can email me at bevanjames at gmail.com. I may have a question, a couple of questions to answer, but I'm going to leave it today because we're going quite long today. So I'll put them in next week's show on, on the show in two weeks from now. Um, I will say I have noticed that a few people have been spreading the word um, on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter about the show. I really appreciate you guys doing that. Podcasting is always a bit of a funny world about capturing audience. So if you can help spread the word, that really, really helps. So once again, thanks for your time and your energy. Keep being great and I'll see you in a couple of weeks time. Mm-hmm.